The Tom Woods Show, episode 1643. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you've ever considered publishing a book through Kindle, I have a lot of experience with it. I helped to publish Bob Murphy's book in Kindle, my own book, Real Descent, that was self-published. I published in Kindle, and I've assembled some videos that will show you step-by-step all the tech aspects of preparing your manuscript to be published as a Kindle book, and also a series of strategies that most people don't know about that Kindle itself makes available to you to help get the word out about your book so people actually see it and buy it. Get these videos for free at tomwoods.com slash Kindle. Everybody, Tom Woods here. You are going to enjoy this episode, I think, because I'm very, very happy with this appearance that I made on the brand new podcast of the Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party, and it's called Decentralized Revolution. And I talked about all kinds of things, and it was just so much fun. And I got a lot of stuff off my chest, and it it was just wonderful. I hope you enjoy it. I do want to note that it was done over Skype, and as with anything you know, any any situation with Skype, doesn't matter how fast your internet is, you can have the most blazing internet of all time, and there are still glitches on Skype. So you'll get a few of those here and there, but you won't have any difficulty following what we're saying. So that is the podcast, Decentralized Revolution. This is my appearance. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. And with me today is Tom Woods. Tom, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on Decentralized Revolution. I had a couple of questions today, but first I wanted to wish you happy Earth Day. I saw the Pope uh, came out with an Earth Day uh, proclamation. Did you happen to see that? No, I I wouldn't waste my time with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I just I just didn't know um, uh, if you wanted to maybe. No, co- I mean, you know? almost almost nothing he says is coherent. What so is, it's it's very sad. Why it must be sad for you as a dedicated Catholic to have somebody like that and always have to defending him or not defending him or talking yeah, about him. No, I don't. I don't. I've given up. Yeah. I mean, he, and the only people he really condemns in the world is his own flock. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Now, most people don't know that because they don't follow his every word every day, but it's the only pe- it's people who are self-righteous and this and that. Like that's the big problem in the world today, right? And it's never, or, or, or you know, rich and greedy people. You know, like in other words, it's Rachel Maddow's list of bad people is also his. So what do we need you for? Right. If we already have Rachel Maddow and you obviously don't think it's that urgent for people to be Catholic, then what do we really need you for? Yeah. And he really does not, it seems to me, have a compelling answer to that question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll leave that there then. Um, yeah. One thing, are you um, uh, thinking about writing Meltdown 2.0? Because I think we're about in the middle of one right now. I just don't have the ambition to write more books at this point. I, I've I've done a lot of it. It's hard. It's a slog. Yeah. <laughs> Especially to, to do something that's that's changing so quickly. I mean, I don't think you could write it right now. Like right. it was the story's not done. And and when will the story be done? I would be much more interested, not that I would do it, but I would be much more interested in writing maybe with a scientist as a co author so I could I could fan off the you don't you're not entitled to an opinion objection, but something that looks at the whole virus issue and how it's been handled and misinformation about it and exaggerations and whether the different approaches that are suggested really work or not. And I think when we look back on this, it's going to be like another Iraq war. 
where people at the time were all gung ho. And then later they say, oh, I never supported that. What yeah. are you talking about? I, I don't know what you're talking about. I was always against that. I think it's going to turn out that way. I would love to see a book like that. I hope somebody does it. Yeah, that'd be great. So let's talk about the difference between that 08 crash and, and this one. The, the pinprick back then was the housing stuff. This one is the coronavirus. But the underlying fundamentals are the same and maybe even worse now. Would you, what would you say to well, that? See, I don't know. See, I think, they are, I think they're quite different Okay. in that the precipitating thing is not all working out of the of the monetary policy, the Fed. Like in other words, when the when the Fed was engaging in its policies leading up to the housing bust, well, this was eventually you were bound to hit a brick wall, so to speak, on that. That that that, that really couldn't go on forever. People not having a job and yet uh, flipping houses and and having um, interest only mortgages and getting no doc mortgages where they don't even have to show that they have an income. Obviously, that couldn't go on forever. And you you were going to get to a point where the the, the house prices were just getting out of control. And not only that, but as, as the economy turns down, people can't make the, the payments on these overpriced houses. I mean, some, there are natural limits built into this. Like the, this was bound to come to grief. Whereas there, there wasn't bound to be a sudden drastic supply shock. You know, there wasn't bound to be a sudden departure of tens of millions of people from the labor force. You know, this is, this is something artificial. And, Yes, it's certainly uh, no doubt accentuated by some other bad policy that took place, but it's not like – I mean I get people even on Facebook who are friends of mine, Facebook friends, not real-life friends, right. saying, <laughs> things like, saying things like, oh, the, this is just the, the pin that, that uh, pricked the bubble. But no, because I don't believe that we were just about to have a double-digit decline in GDP at this very moment. Right. And it's just a coincidence that the virus came along. Nothing like that, I think, was anywhere in the cards. Yeah. So I think we need to acknowledge this really is a unique uh, situation, but it could well be that recovering from it now becomes more challenging because of other policy decisions that were made in the previous years and because of, for example, a lot of business addiction to indebtedness that's become a lot easier for them to do because of Fed policy, to, to, to have their business be based on credit. Well, now that, you know, now what do you do, yeah. right? So in other words, uh, when I asked this of Peter Schiff, uh, he said, I, I said, can you really, I was playing devil's advocate, can you really blame these businesses? How were they supposed to know there's a once in a hundred year pandemic coming? I mean, can you really say right. these are poor managers and we need to get new ones? I mean, the, the entrepreneurs can forecast the future, but they're not, they can't know everything for certain. There's always uncertainty. And his answer was, that's true, but what about a rainy day fund? What about savings? You know, what about not basing your whole model on, on cheap credit all the time so that you could see yourself through a couple of months if push came to shove? Well, yeah. maybe there's something to that. Yeah, I think the, the analogy to the Iraq war is, is pretty good because after 9-11, everybody thought, oh, this is an urgent thing. We have to somehow control terrorism. And of course, what we did was make it just so much worse. And I think that people are going to look back on the joblessness, like what the, you know, unemployment's like, what, 25 million now, something like that. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So it's great. And then, and then, you know, I have forsworn to discuss this further, but I can't, I can't stop myself. Just today in my email newsletter, I sent out a, a newsletter with the subject line, um, something about 
if it saves only one life, say the shysters, because that's what we heard Andrew Cuomo say. If it saves only one life, we're going to shut the world down. Now, leaving aside that you can't possibly do that, because there are a lot of, I suppose there are hypothetical lives that could be saved by doing a lot of crazy things. But more than that is that it's not even clear that's even on net true. Because now we're reading, and not from some crazy conspiracy newsletter or something, but from mainstream sources like the Express in the UK, that's that's pretty mainstream paper. And they're quoting uh, professors saying, it is likely that there will be more avoidable cancer deaths because of the priorities being shifted, healthcare yeah. priorities being shifted into this COVID hysteria. There are going to be more avoidable cancer deaths, cancers that went undetected yep. and therefore we couldn't do anything about, then there will be coronavirus deaths. Yeah. There will be more of these. So even the so that's number one. The other one is the UN. So again, I'm not trying to. I don't want to cite Alex Jones, or I'm trying to cite sources that even these people have to have to respect. The UN saying that probably there'll be hundreds of thousands of children dying in the long run from consequences of this, and another uh, 42 to 66 million children falling into extreme poverty as a result of all this. So. If we are going to take the if it saves one life metric, then we shouldn't be doing this stuff because yeah. <laughs> apparently we're apparently now we can show there's a very plausible case that more lives will be lost than saved. Yeah. So let's shift to what is, I think, the meat of what I wanted to talk about today, which is your recent involvement in the Libertarian Party and your help with the Mises caucus, you're on our board. You're kind of like the godfather of our, of our, of our caucus, whether you know it or not. Um, and you gave a speech a couple of years ago, uh, at the take human action bash, I think in new Orleans, I wasn't there, but I've listened to the speech and I actually have an excerpt of it in the intro to the show. And it's the, it says, you know, if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake people up. So, how do we do that coming when we come out of this or are allowed to campaign again, getting into the campaign? What should we be saying as the Mises caucus and the LP to push liberty in this uh, environment? Well, I have always felt like we might as well just be libertarians, you know, and I know that most Americans are not libertarians, but What's the point of doing this if we're just going to sound like we're 10% cheekier than their local Republican, you know, or or 12% more culturally oddball than their local Democrat? I mean, yeah. like that's not – who's going to vote for you because of that? I want product differentiation yep. because that's what works. And it would seem to me that in this environment – and for some reason, I keep coming back to this blankety-blank virus issue. And I'm sorry. You don't have to, but whatever you want to go. He's saying we need to shut this down, shut that down, abolish this, put controls on that. And I'm not saying that there aren't sensible precautions people should take. There absolutely are. And a lot of people were already taking those precautions and then more and more of them as they found out more. But wouldn't it be interesting to have somebody out there who was loudly opposed to the approach that's been taken. And, you know, instead of, obviously we can't, you don't wipe out a virus by everybody staying home. And you know, what is this, the Flintstones? I mean, this is not, it doesn't work. So why don't we say that different people have different risk tolerances? And why don't we say that the people who are most vulnerable should be most protected, which is not what's happening. They're, they're trying to 
take all our resources and spread them as thinly as possible, trying to cover 330 million people. That's not a good use of resources. Get those resources, concentrate them, and use them to help the elderly in particular get through this. But my view that I've expressed uh, repeatedly is that nobody has a right to claim a chunk of your life. Nobody has a right to do that. No matter how much safer it makes them feel, if they want to stay home, they can stay home. And then you say, oh, but their caregivers then are out with you and you're infecting them and whatever. Well, then they got to be careful. I mean, but you don't have that right to say, well, for a year and a half, which by the way, is what some of them are saying. For a year and a half, you have to live like a vegetable. Zeke Emanuel, who's Rahm Emanuel's brother, is a physician who talks about public health policy. And he says, I, and I swear to you, this is not made up. You're going to have to get used to not having an income, not seeing your friends, not seeing your extended family. And nope, not doing that. Yep. Absolutely not doing that. And so I would like to see the, the libertarian candidate, or as it stands now, candidates, yep. openly and loudly saying things like that, that you can get into the minutiae of six feet away and, or as opposed to five feet in Europe, which, which is a meter and a half, and whatever. But the fundamental question is, you don't have the right to steal people's lives away from to take away from them what gives their lives meaning and then say, well, next month we'll tell you if you can resume your life or if you, it's another month living like a vegetable. And then you get there and it's another month living like a vegetable. Mere biological life is not worth living. And if my hopes, dreams, and aspirations are put on indefinite hold and everything I've worked my whole life for slips away from me and I have no financial security whatsoever and all these things that give life the, 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 the texture and the joy that it's supposed to give us, if all these things are just dangled in front of us and then yanked away and then dangled and yanked away indefinitely, that's inhuman and no one should have to live like this. So whatever our approach to this is going to be, it cannot be predicated on you have the right to steal our lives. Yep. Now, some, but now, yeah, that's not going to be a popular position. But, you know, there will, as the weeks go on and this continues, there will be people who in their heart of hearts will be saying, yeah, publicly, I know what I'm supposed to say. Stay social distancing, everybody. We're all in this together. I know I'm supposed to say that. But there's a part of me that thinks I haven't seen my relatives in Five yeah. months. Yeah. This is stupid. Yep. You know, we're willing to roll the dice here uh, rather than be vegetables. There will be people, and the only people who are going to be singing from that hymn book will be libertarians. Yeah. What are some other ways that that we libertarians, especially our candidates, can can do what you said is just be good libertarians and differentiate? What are some other well, issues? Do you think? Yeah. Harp on um, the the government angle on this. That uh, government missteps, misinformation. Mike Munger at Duke University had a good tweet today. He was tweeting out an article for at Reason where they were talking about the problem of empty grocery store shelves. And part of that has to do with you have a lot of products that are packaged for commercial use, like toilet paper, for example. Commercial toilet paper and toilet paper for personal use are actually two different products, really. As you know, if you've gone to the bathroom at McDonald's, it's like prison grade, right? Sandpaper, yeah. <laughs> right. And so a lot of people, since people aren't going out as much, that toilet paper we have a glut of, and the personal toilet paper we don't have as much. Well, that's also applying to food of various kinds that um, 
when it's packaged for commercial use, the labeling is different. And there are government labeling requirements for food that are now getting in the way of, of mm. repurposing this food for consumer use. So what Mike Munger said is, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, everybody was saying, nobody's a libertarian in a pandemic. And now they're all saying, wait, we have this stupid rule? Why don't we just abolish that rule so we can get done what we need to get done, right? Yeah. So I want libertarian candidates to come up with a bunch of these, you know, and yeah. go out there and just harp on them and say, you know, when push comes to shove, when you really need something, you realize you have to waive all the damn rules. Yeah. So you know what? If all these rules are getting in the way of people's health and well-being, do you understand why we've been against them all along? And the, do you understand why the view of regulation as this, this sacred thing that magically protects our health and is never self-interested, is never passed to benefit one industry at the expense of another, uh, never has cost and benefit out of whack, it's always perfectly wise. Maybe that's just naive and stupid. Yeah, let's pre let's pretend uh, this is January and the the coronavirus thing hasn't happened yet. How would you answer the question about how libertarians should campaign? Uh, let, let's say Hornberger Jacob gets the nomination. What tack should he take against Trump and presumably Biden? I think we can say definitely Biden. Um, well, some yeah, people I, you haven't like some of the conspiracy things or the you know, the um, scenario in which that he's too sick and he bows out and the convention picks yeah, somebody right. else. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that. There's yeah. that, I suppose. Yeah. It, it's been fascinating, by the way, to oh, watch yeah. him fade into the background because of this pandemic. And he's reduced to uttering the most forgettable platitudes on Twitter. It's a really pathetic sight. Now, I have said for a long time that whoever the libertarian candidate is in 2020, I don't care how famous the person is, is going to have a really, really difficult time. It's going to be a hard year for us because I think the dividing line in the country has become much sharper. And I think people, like for example, conservatives are always worried about the Supreme Court and they'll say, look, we're this close. And if we lose, we're going to be set back forever. It's going to be hard to dissuade them of that. Uh, secondly, there's, I guess the other major concern I have would be, and I know you said, I know you said with, if, if there hadn't been a virus, let me just put in parentheses, given that there is a virus, the other issue is under a President Biden, if there's a second wave or whatever, he will lock the whole country down by executive order. Yeah. Like he'll do it. And, and we've seen Trump won't do that. And that's one clear difference between them. I mean, I'm very much the, there's not as much difference between the candidates as people think guy. That's a difference. Yeah. Now Biden won't do it. It's the people around him. Well, I mean, he'll do whatever the hell these people tell him to do. Um, so that's a big difference, and that's one that might scare people into voting Trump. They don't want to see – yeah, they don't like him, and they think he's impetuous and, and, and uh, self-centered, but they don't want the whole country shut down. That's a difficult one to, to compete with. So in this environment, I would say the, the best you would be able to do is um, you have to speak to the audience that's in front of you. Yep. So if you're, if you're looking to, to disaffected leftists who say – we're very unhappy that Bernie Sanders didn't get it. You say, all right, look, you, we're never going to agree on Bernie Sanders. That's true. But one thing we should be able to agree on is that the mainstream of the two parties, when push comes to shove, they are in agreement on the major things. You know, Citibank is always going to come out smelling like roses, whether it's Joe Biden or Trump or anybody else. And we all know it. And so you can talk about issues like that and civil liberties and whatever and say, 
yep, we're not going to be best friends, but we're the outcasts. We're the ones who we just want people to be able to live peacefully. And yet you and I are the only demonized ones in the country. Isn't that weird? Yep. Isn't that weird? We're the demonized ones. And these are the architects of the housing boom and bust. These are the architects of the Iraq war. Uh, these people, these are the people you want to trust. And, and, and these are the ones who get a pass. They're all called statesmen and wise on television. And we are marginalized. How about we marginalize people work together for a change? Yep. You know, and we don't have to agree on everything. We got a pretty good start. So that'd be my approach there. I don't know how well that works because I have found that the left if uh, just doesn't want to work with people who disagree with them. I'm pretty much willing to work with people who agree with me on a few of the major issues, and then we'll work on the other issues uh, later on. But the the right wing, I think that the trouble is they're going to be a t- so the way I would handle that is just by basically making a list of all the different things Trump has done uh, economically. I mean, they, yeah, he's been good on regulation, and he's been fairly good on energy policy. But, geez, I mean, you could look at his, you know, the stuff about the Federal Reserve. You could, uh, the, the, the trade stuff has not turned out well. Uh, it's been a lot of misplaced energy, I think. And you could just go down and down. And, and his willingness to uh, sign on to these crazy bills during the virus. Um, you know, when there's a, if there's an economic downturn, you're going to trust this guy to say, uh, no, we're going to let the thing run its course because otherwise we're just going to prolong it. You really trust that guy to say that at some point you have to just vote your conscience right. at some point. When's that going to be, when are you finally going to say I'm answerable to myself at the end of, of you know, when all said and done and I have to vote for somebody who represents the things I believe in and who doesn't crap all over them and who doesn't pay them at the first opportunity. And maybe that person won't win. But at what point do I say it matters to choose the best person? At what point am I going to say that to myself? It matters to choose the best person. And the more we do that, maybe other people are inspired to become better. Right. Let's talk about um, something that you've talked about in reference to the Ron Paul campaign that in the beginning uh, I think in the first go around in 08, you were, you were like, Hey, maybe we ought not talk about the fed too much because it's, nobody knows what it is. It's arcane, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. You, and one of our goals with the Mises caucus is to somehow reignite that revolution. And we're, we're actually talking about doing an in the fed rally, or uh, in the early stages of planning it for this summer sometime, if we're allowed and all that. Um, do you think that that's a, an issue that could, could catch fire again this year? And how, what makes you, you're, you're good at talking about this and, and explaining it. How do you talk about the Fed to normal Americans? Well, that, that's tricky because I, I do talk to normal Americans uh, about it a little differently from how I talk to libertarians. At uh, first, I just, I, I just try to say things to get them thinking. I say, I say look, I'm not really a, a conspiracy sort of person. However, if there's a piece of legislation that's drafted in secret, by the country's top bankers. Are you telling me that the most reasonable interpretation of this is that they're looking out for the common good? Is that really the best you can do? Or is there not something a little fishy about this? Isn't this the kind of thing that 99 times out of 100, a good progressive would say something has to be fishy here? And yet, oddly enough, everybody looks at this thing and says, don't you dare question it. This thing gives us stability. And, and then they go and repeat talking points that sound like they're being uttered by a robot, like they, they were fed to them 
through some kind of a chip in their brains. I mean, it, none of it even sounds authentic or, or believable. It's just a list of points they go into. And we have, we have stability because of the Fed. Now, none of this stuff is true. And incidentally, what would an interview with Tom Woods be without mentioning an ebook? Right. I have a free ebook called Our Enemy, the Fed, that actually lays out these arguments because you, ha- you will come across that. Well, the Fed has given us fewer recessions, so you have to at least give them that. And didn't we also have uh, financial panics before the Fed? So that goes to show it's not all the Fed's fault. All that stuff is answered in my ebook. And so I actually bought the domain OurEnemyTheFed.com. That was not taken to my amazement. So OurEnemyTheFed.com, I would get that, read it, and you can use some of those talking points. So I start the, by, by at least making them think something's fishy, right? Something's fishy about this. The second thing I say to them, would be, suppose we had a big thing created by bankers, and after a hundred years of it, and they're in charge of like they're in charge of the money, and then after a hundred years of it, a dollar is worth about four cents. Yeah. Would you say that thing had been a success? Now, I know people can say, yeah, but uh, it's true, prices went up, but wages went up too. Okay, but sometimes there's a lag, and sometimes there's no one-to-one connection. Sometimes the price of things you particularly like go way up. And so th- there's a lot of reasons this is a problem. It also means you can't save. Yep. How are you going to save for the future in these dollars when, you know, after 30 years, they've lost a third of their value or something? How are you supposed to save? Well, you can't save, so you wind up going into the stock market, which you know nothing about, and then you get wiped out potentially. There are all kinds of problems. So I, I point this out. Are you, would you really say that was a success? I mean, suppose somehow the government had said, let's leave money entirely to the free market. And the result was a dollar was worth four cents. Wouldn't you be screaming at the top of your lungs about how we need oversight of this? Well, now we have oversight. In fact, it's the overseers of it who caused this. So why are you not outraged now? But that exact outcome would make you berserk if it had happened as a result of laissez-faire. I mean, do you notice that there's a bias built into us toward established authority, even among people who in the 1960s had as their slogan, question authority. So I talk like that. With libertarians, I talk about here's how the business cycle occurs because of the Fed. And that's, that would be the next level I would get to with the, the, uh, the normie, let's say. With the normie, um, I've, I've made some of those arguments and a lot of my friends are coming to me now because they're worried about the economy and I'm explaining things to them. And I have a lot of success with the type of things you just said. Sometimes the next step, which is me trying to explain how gold is the, is a better alternative or, you know, letting the free market pick whatever the currency is. Sometimes there are, I'm not as good explaining that. So how would you, uh, how would you make that case for the alternative to the Fed? All right. Well, so what I'm actually going to do, I want to just make sure I'm giving out a, a link that still works because this, you know, the old man here has a lot of links and he's been around a number of years. So we just want to make sure this is still good. So I'm going to look right now. I believe, yes, okay, if you really want the step-by-step explanation of exactly how you would have a separation of money and state, which, by the way, I wouldn't go into all these details with the average person, but if you as a libertarian want to be able to picture it, then I actually have the the best thing I've ever seen written on the exact mechanics of this uh, is congressional testimony before Ron Paul's subcommittee back in 2012 by Professor Jeff Herbener from Grove City College, which is where the great Hans Senholtz used to teach. And I put it up at tomwoods.com slash money. 
tomwoods.com slash money has his whole testimony there. And that walks you through step by step. I think the average person, I would not try to explain how the production of money can and should occur the same way men's dress shoes production uh, should occur. Because that would just sound crazy to most people. And you have to start where people are. Instead, I would just simply say, well, let's look at what actually existed. You know, instead of trying to, because I, I would even say to them, I'll meet you halfway. We don't have to go the full libertarian separation of money and state route. Um, I'll meet you halfway, which, by the way, is what I say with the roads, too. I really don't try to convince people right. that we can have private roads, even though we obviously could. I mean, you look at the, the technological wonders of the world we have, and you think that without the government, we'd all have our houses and our stores, and we'd be looking across some uh, unmowed field at each other, right. scratching our heads as to what to do next. I mean, come on. Right. You know, but I, I don't even, I even say, look, I'll, how about I grant you the roads and we'll talk about the other 98% of the things, yeah. you know, cause that, that's what, cause I, you know, like why spend all my time on one of the issues that was the hardest for me to see, you know, that was one of the last things. Once they see everything else, even if they don't get the mechanics of the roads, they'll say, oh, one way or another, we'd figure out the damn roads. You know, they would just, so, so likewise with, with money, I would just say, Let's meet halfway. And I know that the, the gold standard has a, a, you know, a bad rap. I know that. I know we've been told a lot of things, but it caused this problem and that problem. But what I also know is that under the gold standard, we had uh, robust economic growth to the point where by the eve of World War I, the United States was becoming the mightiest industrial power in the world. It was not being held back by being on a gold standard. And to the contrary, uh, as compared with today, the money increased in value all the time. So if you wanted to save for the future, all you had to do was accumulate coins. You don't have to buy bonds or get in the stock market or you know talk to some broker about your mutual fund or you don't even know what he's saying to you. All you had to do was accumulate the coins. And now we've been taught that if prices fall, this leads to disaster. That That's not true either, but that's a completely different conversation. If they wanted to challenge me on that, I'd talk to them about that. But I would say that this is real life. I mean, we actually... Uh, had this happen. And the result was massive. Ex- we had we saw wages rising consistently in the late 19th century, early 20th. We saw purchasing power uh, go up so that the same amount of money would buy you more things. And we saw the United States basically outshining everybody in production. If it was so bad, how did all that happen? Yep. Yep. Um, what do you think of the Hornberger campaign so far? Uh, well, I mean, he's he's had some successes, right? I mean, in, in straw polls and things. Yep. And and that's been good. Um, I don't want to say anything that would get him in trouble. <laughs> but uh, but I'll just say, um, I, I just mean, like, I, I don't have anything to do with the Hornberger campaign. So oh, it's yeah, all yeah. right. It's all right for people who don't like Tom Woods. You, you are allowed to like Hornberger. Right. Okay? You, you have official permission to like him. Um, you know, I think he's a, he's a very likable and easygoing guy. But but golly, when you get him worked up about something, he really like, I had him on my show uh, first time in years I had him on was uh, we did an episode called Abolish the CIA. Now, I came up with that title because that says it all. Right. I mean, and, and man, did libertarians listen to that one? You know, there there are and I know who you are. There are some people who don't listen to every episode of the right. Tom show. They pick and choose. Well, when you see abolish the CIA come up on your phone, <laughs> you're clicking on that faster than anything, right? So he's he's sound on like he's not afraid to be out of the mainstream on that. He's not going to give you an answer like, "Well, we do need it to do the following things," and it's very important to you know. He's not going to give you some mealy mouthed answer. 
And that's really his great strength. Another great strength of his is that for 30 years, he's been writing an article a day. Yep. You know, after a while, you learn something about libertarianism when you do that, yep. right? He's got to, and if he forgets something, all he has to do is go back and look at his article about it. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, the guy's output. So he's productive. He knows anybody who's anybody. Uh, he's able to explain our position. You know, I have suggested that maybe some of the emphasis in his messaging could be clarified or shifted a bit. Because um, I, I really don't want to spend the, the campaign talking about health care or the pro, you know, or I mean, I don't think this is this election cycle where we emphasize the problems of the welfare state. And I don't mean we run away from them. You ask me a question, I'm going to give you an answer. Yep. But think about how a successful candidate runs. Like think about Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan had positions on everything under the sun. But the one thing you remembered in 1980 was his question. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? Yep. That's the thing. you Nobody remembers what Ronald Reagan's agriculture policy was in 1980. They remember that question. Well, likewise, somebody like Trump. What do we remember about Trump? The wall. I mean, yeah, some other things. Uh, trade with China, a little bit about the military. And yeah, if you asked him about agriculture, he'd flap his gums all day long. But I, even now, I don't really understand what his position on that is. But it was build the wall. So there's one thing. And so I just the other day, I had somebody on my show who had written an article on Joe Biden. Good Lord, could you imagine the drudgery of writing an article on Joe Biden? <laughs> the beat and, reporter who covers his campaign. What, what must that existence right, be Right, like? exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I said, I can't think of what Joe Biden's thing is. Like, I know what Trump's was. I know what Reagan's was. I, I could come up with, with ones for, for uh, some of the other uh, presidents. What was his? What was his? And he said, that's the thing. I don't think anyone knows. Yeah. I don't think anyone has an answer to that. So, so bringing this back to libertarians, we, we got to focus on something. So given that we have to focus on something, pick three things that are really, really major problems. And then if they ask you about the other things, you, you know, let the chips fall where they may give your answer. But you know, with the virus, well, then look, you got to you got to talk about that, yep. and you got to be the one who's saying things that's different from what everybody else is saying. I mean, if we're not going to differentiate ourselves now, then it's never going to happen. We're yep. never going to differentiate ourselves. So I would say, pick those things where not only do you have a burning passion, not only are libertarians dead right, but when people hear us, they're it virtually compels their assent, but that are current and that help to account for where we are now, and. You know, it's up to him to figure out what those are. But I would say up until the virus, I would have kept emphasizing the warfare state. Certainly, yeah. that's one. Like, nobody even knows what the point of any of this is anymore. And the idea that it's keeping us safe is, is laughable. Yeah. I'd get Scott Horton as my foreign policy advisor, which and Scott, he'll, he'll advise anybody. I mean, you know, if a grasshopper is running for office, <laughs> Scott will advise. Uh, I would do that. I would. The Fed is tricky because. I was wrong to say that Ron Paul shouldn't talk about the Fed. I admit that. I've, I've been delighted to admit that I was wrong about that. But at least he was in a major party. Minor party, minor issue is hard. Yeah. Now, I think the Fed's a major issue, but it's not, it's not on most people's radar. I think as libertarians, given that we are in a, a little ghetto, you know, there's just a small number of us and we're confined in this small space, um, we need to focus on what they're thinking about. I don't yeah. think we – because we can't get on a debate stage most of the time to make our case for why they should care about the Fed. I think we have to focus on what's on people's minds. And so I would, I would talk about what's going on right now, and I would hammer home 
frankly, some of the points Thomas Massey has made that, oh, we're going to bail out Americans and we're going to help them. But isn't it interesting that every single time yeah. the average American is given a Tootsie Roll yeah. <laughs> and all the high rollers get all the dough. Like, aren't you tired of that? Right. Yeah. So stuff like that, you know? Speaking of Massey, uh, his colleague, Justin Amash, it's, uh, it's rumored that he's about to get into the LP race. Uh, supposedly he's uh, uh, become a lifetime member of the LP. None of that is substantiated yet, as far as I know. But what do you think? Uh, what do you think about him, especially over the last, you know, with his Trump position and things like that and how he would affect the libertarian race? Yeah. Well, I disagree with him in that whole Trump thing and, and, and some, some good solid people on the left did too. Yeah. And so when they turned that on Bernie and they said, Oh, Russia wants Bernie to be the nominee. I mean, nobody who isn't brain dead believed that. Right. I mean, really. But Bernie, because he fell for the stupid Russiagate nonsense, was reduced. Instead of saying, this is a transparent attack on my campaign that wouldn't fool a seven-year-old, instead he was reduced to saying, well, I officially say to Vladimir Putin, you stay out of our election. I thought that is the most pathetic response I've ever seen. So I found out there apparently there are some libertarians who don't like Scott Horton, really? who's our hero on foreign policy, right. partly because he didn't favor the impeachment. Right. Because he thought it was a it was a distraction from more important things. Which by the way, now that we have this virus, turns out was right. Right. <laughs> you know, turns out that was a distraction from more important things. So that to me was is a bizarre set of priorities. So, like, And I would have felt the same way, by the way, about the Clinton impeachment. I would have felt the same way. If you're going to go to that trouble, impeach him for something uh, real, yeah. not this phony baloney BS, right? So the other thing would be, like, I, I look at his tweets and it's, ugh, like, his stuff about what should have been in the, the stimulus bill or something is very, well, what we should have moved toward was more like a universal basic income. Uh, and that would have been better than, I don't want that to be the libertarian messaging. And, and I know there'll be people come along and say, but that would be better than the welfare programs we have now. Yep. And it sounds like it came out of the Heritage Foundation. Yep. Well, we have a replacement for the welfare programs we have now. That's what these waste your time, blow a half billion dollar budget a year think tanks do all day yep. is they come up with this would be better than the programs we have now. And usually what happens is we get that and the programs we have now and they scratch their heads and say, gee, I didn't know that would happen. Is that going to be our libertarian messaging? Come on. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's – plus I think it's way too late for Amash to get in. And uh, I think the LP is – our delegates are a little less welcoming of, of of people who come in at the last minute from a major party after our experience with Bill Weld last time. Yeah, I mean it's an insult. Yeah. Come on. I mean have some self-respect. Yeah. Right? I mean you know, if it's basically saying I'm a loser. So who's going to take a loser and, you know, we're going to raise our hands. That's sad. Right. Um, I, I had a, several questions from the uh, Tom Wood show elite, which I've oh, been, I'm scared of these questions. <laughs> they're actually not that bad. And I, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm not, uh, there's a couple of them that I'm not going to uh, get into, but one is kind of related to a little bit about what we've been talking about. Someone specifically asked about kind of the Rothbardian strategy of trying to, take, you know, make alliances or take right-wing populism and turn it into a libertarian movement. Um, do you think that's possible now? Well, I, in his day, it was more important to make quote unquote alliances because there wasn't an internet yep. and 
So, and it's very, very expensive to publish a magazine. Like even National Review has always relied on donors to keep that thing afloat. That's true of almost any of these opinion magazines, that they are always in the red. So if you make an alliance with somebody who has a magazine, hey, free magazine. You know, so it, but whereas today, you can have a blog online and it's almost right. free. You know, so this, there isn't as much need for, for alliances as there used to be. But there is still a reason to try to appeal to people uh, who might not agree with us. And I personally think we shouldn't restrict ourselves to appealing to people on the right or in any particular place. I think we have people who are good at talking to all kinds of people. Yeah. Now, I personally have brought more people in who grew up as Republicans and then they found out the Republicans are you-know-whats uh, and then they converted. But I have quite, in spite of myself and by accident, happy accident, converted a lot of people on the left. I have the emails to prove it. I have somebody who told me, he read Meltdown, my book on the financial crisis, and that converted him away from socialism. I wasn't even aiming at that, and I hit it somehow. Yeah. So I feel like go for what works best for you because I can speak the language of a disgruntled Republican because that's what I used to be. Yeah. I can talk to those people and say, look, I know what you're, you know, you're frustrated with these people, but that's the nature of who they are. But then say, look, you're not really consistent, are you? You know, oh, I am against the, the government. I want limited government. But then you go and support like the most grotesque parts of the government. Yeah. Right? I mean, are you sure this is consistent? So I can talk to them and, and get them on board. Um, but nobody else is reaching out to them because everybody else, like we're talking about people on the right, everybody else demonizes them without even listening. You know, they, they all, whatever, they're all this or that. They call them a name. Uh, it's grotesque how these people are treated. A lot of them are very, very smart. And people who are intellectual com pygmies compared to them are talking down to them in platitudes and slogans. No, there's a real opportunity. There are a lot of young people who are not on the left. They, they, the last thing they would ever do is support the left, but they're not convinced by the Republican Party either. Yep. Well, these people are, are ripe for the picking. Why not do it? One thing that sometimes holds people from the right uh, back from libertarianism is the whole issue of immigration. Um, how, how, how would you talk to someone on the right about that, about how... And, you know, I personally, I don't see a role. I don't see how you can enforce immigration without the nap, w without breaking the nap. Um, but at the same time, I think our government does a lot of things to encourage immigration and things like that. That's, that's a problem. Um, how, and I know there's libertarians are all over the place on this one, but uh, what, what would you say to someone who says, hey, I'll be a libertarian, but we got to but we got to keep right. people out and build the wall and all that? Well, first, I would point them to uh, that, as you say, there is a diversity of opinion among libertarians on this subject. The Journal of Libertarian Studies did an issue edited by the great historian Ralph Rako, uh, who was with Cato for a long time, in which he, he got contributions from people like John Hospers, who was the very first yep. LP candidate, and he was not in favor of open borders. So it's at least debatable among libertarians. And you, know, you may – and by the way, there are things debatable among libertarians where I think one side is 100% right, right. the other side is 100% wrong, but sometimes when somebody I really, really respect and I think is, is, is really, really smart and accomplished is 100% in disagreement with me, I hesitate to say, well, they're not libertarians. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't think I'm right. It's just, uh, let's hash this out more before I condemn you. So first I would say that we have a difference of opinion, but secondly, the, the way I would frame it 
is at the very least, we can all agree that it shouldn't be subsidized. Yep. So the first thing I, I would not, and also I would not say, I'm not going to assume that you're a terrible person who hates people yep. because of your concern about immigration. That's, that's what every fashionable blue check mark on Twitter will say to you. Yep. And I would hope libertarians are above that. Yep. I mean, really. Surely we're better than Alyssa Milano, for heaven's sake. <laughs> You know, or Ted Danson or, you know, whatever these airheads are. Right. We're better than that. Let's not automatically apply to them the same name calling they get from everywhere else. Be respectful toward other people that you, you disagree with uh, would also go a long way. But I would say just quit subsidizing it would go a long way, wouldn't it? And, and you know, as, as you've said, I don't see what would be the problem of saying that um, you, know, you could have an immigration policy where, all right, everybody who comes in, you're welcome to come in, but you don't get any of these benefits. There are some libertarians who wouldn't accept that, which goes to show they're more for immigration as a general principle than they are for libertarianism as a philosophy. Yep. So I would say, well, what about that? Why don't you work to dismantle things? And then also, it's it's worth noting that the the housing boom, which was artificially created, um, encouraged a lot of immigration. And then when things went back to normal, well, how about that? It kind of reversed. Yep. So some of the things that you're upset about are the result of things we're upset about. Yep. So even if we don't agree with your whole position on that, you know, 60% of what we're doing is going to make you happy. Yep. And, and that's, that's basically what I say to people on the left. You know, a lot of what we're doing is going to make you happy. Not everything, but you'll get at least something. And that's the way Walter Block would put it. You'll get at least something with us. Yep. You're not going to get anything with these people. Guaranteed. Yep. But with us, you get something. Yeah. Uh, another question from the uh, elite, and uh, I'm going to read this exactly as worded. Should libertarians reject anything Coke-related as controlled opposition? No, um, I don't think so. I've spoken at events where I was funded by, and I found out later it was funded by right. the Cokes. Right. Thank you very much. It's hard to escape the tentacles of all that. Yeah, uh, right, so, yeah. right. Because I mean, the thing is, they have contributed to some endowed professorships. Right at universities. And then those universities then have a speaking budget and some of that speaking budget goes to the old man here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just ask myself this question, uh, is the world a better place if I don't give that speech? And I just don't think it is. Yeah. So like there have been projects I've worked on where in the project, there's some other guy people don't like. They say that guy's a schmuck. And I say, all right, well, even, even if we assume that guy's a schmuck, is the world a better place if I don't complete that project? And the answer is no. So I'm going to do the project. Yep. And I'm, I'm answerable only for myself. It doesn't matter. To me. It's like if I drink Pepsi, I really am not going to spend my time figuring out where they donate their money and their corporate profits and whatever, because that's just going to make me crazy and it's going to make my life miserable and it's going to politicize every aspect of my life. I'm responsible only for myself. I didn't make those contributions. I didn't intend for that. And likewise, I just went and gave a speech somewhere and I educated some people. I've had a lot of people say, I started following you and I learned about the Mises Institute because you came to my college and gave a speech and I left spellbound and I had to read everything after that. Yep. So that's my opinion. Okay. And there's, there's a lot of people associated with, uh, Cato. Uh, like I, I was an intern for Cato way back in 1996 and, uh, things have changed a lot there since then. But even now there's still a lot of great people doing great yeah. work at, at some yep. of those places that, that I don't want to be, you know, you say this all the time. I don't want to be the type of person who says, oh, if this one person, if you associated with this one person in some way, then therefore right. I can't talk to you at all. 
and I, I'm not dismissing the substance of that 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 question. Uh, I think that's a debatable question, but maybe not for here. But I just don't want to be that kind of, you know, uh, drawing. Life is up. too short. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as I as I you know continue through middle age, I find myself saying that a lot. Life is is this really something I want to spend my time on? A feud yeah. like this? Not yeah. really. And one thing I know that you don't want to spend your time on these days is writing books. Uh, people are always <laughs> asking you to write another book. Um, but I did have a question, so I'm going to phrase it this way. If, uh, if you had to write another book and somebody came along with a good book contract that said a big high bonus right up front and said, you have to write a book, what would be the book that you would write today? Well, I, I did mention earlier this virus book. I think that needs to be done. Um, years ago, a friend of mine came up with an idea that maybe somebody could run with that I would never get to, but I just like the, the title. Uh, he came up with the almanac of despicable people. You could update it every year. <laughs> so <laughs> that'd be a fun project too. Um, but I think that's probably it. I mean, maybe I could do something on homeschooling, but I think there's a, there are a lot of resources out there already. So what I've kind of done is shifted my emphasis. I mean, I've written a dozen books already, yeah. and I feel like I've done the book thing. I've written a lot of articles. So now what I do is I have a podcast episode that comes out every single weekday, I've done hundreds of videos for homeschoolers in, at, you know, at ronpaulhomeschool.com. And I feel like that serves a different func function because that's for younger people. I'm trying to cover a lot of different bases because people who are you know, 15 years old are not going to, most of them are not going to read my books except the really precocious ones. Right. But they will view those courses and it will help, help them think more clearly. It'll help them understand history better. You know, and, then, and then the podcast kind of can reach the average guy who's not going to read one of my 300 page books. Yeah. And so that way I'm, I'm kind of hitting all, but so I, I feel like I'd be going backwards to go back to the old book thing. Yeah. And I feel like it would be forced because I, I don't have anything that is really pressing on me to write. And I really don't want to write books just for the money. Right. I want to write them because I've, I feel driven to write. Yeah. Um, I, w I want to ask you about podcasting, but I don't, uh, I don't want to let go that idea, the almanac of despicable people expand on that a little bit. What, what's I, your I actually don't even know what it would be. Oh. It's like when, <laughs> when I wrote the, when I wrote the politically incorrect guide to American history, I didn't come up with that title. Okay. The publisher thought of the title before the book was even written. They came to me and said, we want to publish a book called the politically incorrect guide to American history. Would you write it? Okay. So in the same way, this friend of mine came up with this title. I don't know what it would be. Yeah. That was the beauty of it. That would that be it was fun. this empty, this husk, this <laughs> shell that I could fill. That's funny. Yeah. Um, so you have been, I think it's fair to say you and Dave Smith are probably the, the two most prominent libertarian podcasters. How, and I, this is a, you could take a long time to answer this, but I don't expect a lot of biographical detail, but how did you get from being a history professor to a podcaster, your lifestyle seems to have changed quite a bit over the last several years because of that. You seem happier because of it and you don't want to write books. So what made you make that decision? Uh, well, the, the long and the short of it is I, um, I, I was at the Mises Institute in residence, like physically there. I yeah. lived in Auburn, Alabama for four years. And then for family reasons, we wound up moving. And when we moved, I, I didn't want to try to convince the Mises Institute to pay me a salary. That just seemed wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I you know, was going to be freelancing, just going off on my own. So I did a lot of public speaking, and I taught courses for the Mises Institute remotely. But yeah, I had to do something to make a living. And so I started, I created my uh, Liberty Classroom website. 
Uh, and then I started working on the Ron Paul curriculum. That was a inve- two-year investment in my time to, to create 400 videos on history. I mean, to, to research them, to, to make the PowerPoints, record them, edit them, come up with assignments for each one of them. I mean, it, 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 you can't believe how much work that is. And it's a miracle I did it in two years. I worked at breakneck speed to get that done in two years. Yeah. It was unbelievable. I mean, I, I don't know how I did that. But while I was doing that, I felt like I was, I was spending so much time on it, I didn't have time to do my usual YouTube videos and my writing that I would do to keep my name out there. And I felt like I want my name to stay out there because that is kind of also how I make a living. People find out about me, they invite me to speak, things like that. So I thought, what can I do to keep my name out there while I'm basically in hibernation working on this project? And the answer came to me, what about a half-hour show? I mean, originally I thought of it as being a longer show, but then I settled on about a half-hour show. So every single weekday, something with my name on it is still going out there. And I can, I can figure out a way to make the time to do a half-hour thing, even if it involves some prep, reading a book written by a guest, whatever. I can do that every day. And that will basically keep people aware of me while I'm working on this project. Yeah. And it was a natural consequence uh, also of having filled in for Peter Schiff on the Peter Schiff show as a fill-in host when he used to be on terrestrial radio. It wasn't just a podcast. He had a radio program, a call-in radio show, two hours a day, every weekday. And I would, I would go down literally to my local radio station and use their facilities to host that show. And he would, he would just tell me, uh, next week I can't do it or tomorrow morning could you fill in for me? And I would just, with no prep, I would show up and just start talking and taking calls. And it was, it was so natural. It flowed so well that I just thought the next logical step was for me to be kind of a spinoff of the Peter Schiff show and have the Tom Woods show. Right. Um, what advice would you give to people who are trying to do a podcast? I, I know one, one concern I had with doing this one was, you know, there's tons of libertarian podcasts uh, already. And so the tack that we're trying to take is we're talking about libertarian stuff, but also be able to focus on LP stuff uh, to, and, and what the Mises uh, um, pack does and what the Mises caucus does. So we have a differentiating factor yeah. there. How somebody, just a normal person, would you recommend them doing a libertarian podcast or should they find another niche or what would you say to someone? Well, it depends on what they want to accomplish with it. Okay. Uh, if, if they want to make a living podcasting, I think libertarianism is actually very difficult to monetize. Uh, I make a living at it, but I'm a freak outlier. It's, yeah. it's really, it's very, very hard. Uh, but if it's just something you do because it makes you happy, then, then don't let that stop you. Now, I think what you're doing is very smart to differentiate yourselves. But I would say that some other approaches that some people have taken, I don't want to single anybody out because I don't want to hurt feelings, haven't been as successful because the trouble is we're already a small minority. Mm-hmm. And then if you niche yourself down too much by saying, we're the libertarian such and such, you know, then only people who are libertarians and interested in that are going to listen. And then you're speaking to a dwindling number of people. So you got to be, you know, you have to really think long and hard about the best way to do that. Yeah. And then I would say, go for the most high profile guests you can get. And most of them will turn you down, but not all of them. You will be surprised. I've, I've said this before, but I used to ask Scott Horton, who, uh, you know, for all his expertise, you'd think he'd have a gigantic audience. He has an okay audience, but it's not huge. And so I asked him, how do you get people like Daniel Ellsberg from the Pentagon Papers on your show? And he says, you'll never believe it. I just ask them. Yep. And, and I think a lot of people don't ask because they just assume the answer will be no. Yep. And that's either because 
I mean, that is a natural assumption. Or they just don't have enough self-confidence, and it cripples them, and so they don't even ask. At least ask, because then when you have a big person on the show, that helps to build your audience, because then you write them a nice note the next day. I'm so grateful you took the time to be on the show. Here's the link to our appearance, and I would be absolutely delighted if you would share it with your circles. And maybe they will, maybe they won't. But if they do, then a whole new bunch of people will find out about you. That's an audience you didn't have to build. That other person already built it. So you have to think strategically like that. That's why I'm having you on the show, so you can uh, uh, tweet out to everybody to listen to this. So, yeah, the thing yeah. Yeah, is, the problem is I, I spend so much time promoting other people's podcasts. Right. I just think, well, the old man has to make a living here still, too. Well, we're, trust me, we're not anywhere close to uh, encroaching <laughs> on your corner yet. Um, uh, another question from the elite, and I think this person was is himself uh, about to be or is a, a libertarian PhD candidate in history. Uh, what recommendations would you make to someone who's already chosen that field? You know, what career advice, uh, academic career advice would you give them? Well, it's not impossible that you could become a professor. But if that's what you want to do, then I, I have the same two pieces of advice. They've not changed in 15 years. And these are pieces of advice no one else is going to give you. And they will give you an advantage. The first one is, couple of years, like maybe maybe even when you first enter your program for your PhD, go to chronicle.com, which is the website of the Chronicle of Higher Education, and start looking at the job listings already. And what you're looking for is the outside field that they prefer. So yes, they want to hire you as an American historian, but they'll also say uh, an outside field in, um, you know, specialty in East Asia preferred or a specialty in whatever preferred. So if you have this additional thing like modern European history, this will give you a leg up because so you'll know now. So so you scan those ads and then you say, which one keeps appearing? Which which outside field are they asking for the most? And I can guarantee you almost nobody applying has that outside field yeah. because most of them waited until it was time to go on the job market. They looked at the outside fields and they said, I should have been working on this. But you'll know. Get started on this. That will get because they. They, they give up. They, they never get people who satisfy that outside. Because how many American historians are also taking East Asian history? None. So if you have that, you're going to stand way above everybody else. Yep. The second thing is don't blog. Don't spend time on Facebook. Don't do any of that stuff. Don't write articles for the Mises Institute or for Fee or anybody. You spend all your time writing an article for an academic journal. And it can be an expansion of a paper you do for a class whatever it is, if you get a paper, an article published in a peer-reviewed journal while you're in graduate school, that too will put you leagues above the competition because nobody else, I mean, 5% at most of applicants are going to have a published article. And if, um, if you can even get two articles or a paper presentation at a conference, this will put you so far ahead of your competition, whereas everybody else will have spent their time being snarky on Facebook about how stupid Donald Trump is. You're not going to waste your time with that. You stay single-mindedly focused on this. That's your chance to get an academic job. Yeah. Uh, a couple more questions from the elite. Uh, you do a lot of traveling, and someone asked for your favorite place to visit. Well, um, it's a tie between Vienna and London. And I'll just say, I, I thought London was a much more beautiful city than I expected it to be. Then I went to Vienna, and I thought, okay, well, Vienna's even better. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I just... What's killing me about this virus thing is that I was finally having time to, to see the world, and then the world shuts down on me. 
Yep. My, uh, my wife and I got married in 2016 and our, our honeymoon was Vienna, Edinburgh and uh, London. So I, I agree with you on those two places. They're and you know, great. I was going to be in Scotland next month and I was going to be in Dubai next month and that's all gone. Yeah. That's, that's horrible. Um, yeah. Um, someone else asked, I have no idea why they asked this question, but uh, have you found any British food you like yet? Oh, no. What you do when you're in London <laughs> is you go to ethnic restaurants right. because the, the Greek people right. still know how to make Greek food. And Indians, you know, the, yeah. the Chinese restaurants, they know how to make Chinese food. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, my wife is uh, uh, the daughter of uh, Taiwanese immigrants. So uh, when we go to big cities, we always get the authentic Chinese food and uh, it's great. You don't, There's not much of it around here in Dayton, Ohio. Um, let's see, how many, how many uh, uh, domain names do you own? <laughs> 20 I, I don't know oh, <laughs> I, actually don't I would know. think it would be more you, you're always coming up with yeah it could be it could maybe it's 30 i i don't even know <laughs> okay you don't yeah, have i don't know so you don't have like a big reserve of like 200 that you're just waiting to unleash oh no i don't buy them until i think of them okay and then i snatch them. i don't buy them unless i really know i'm going to use them right away Right. Um, I always like to ask people, especially uh, people with so many books on their shelves uh, back there, uh, what have you read recently that you like? And what's a book that you've been meaning to read forever and haven't got to yet? Uh, that's a good one. I mean, honestly, these days, the time I spend reading is when I read books to prep for podcast episodes. Yeah. Thankfully, I invite only people whose books I would want to read anyway. Right. So that's not a problem. So Jared Casey's book on um oh now i can't remember the name freedom's part is it freedom's Freedom's progress Progress, question mark Uh, yep the his history of political thought is is tremendous and then the problem of political authority by michael humer yep most boring title for the most intellectually exciting book uh he really really demolishes every claim for the state you can imagine and he does it not in a rights-based framework which might not convince everybody, but but making really, really compelling and vivid analogies to, to real life and say, well, you wouldn't go along with this in real life, and yet you accept the same argument when it comes to the state. And he's just relentless with these. It's a beautiful book. Yeah. Um, as a historian yourself, what uh, historians do you recommend to people? And, and here's another question. How do you know that the historian whose book you picked is not full of it? Like, like, how do we know what what makes us sure that, say, Ralph Rako is better than Doris Kearns Goodwin? Uh, OK, well, the fact that Dor- Doris Kearns Goodwin trades in, you know, hagiographical accounts and is not really critical. She's she's adoring of the people she writes about makes me question it right off the bat. Doesn't mean she's wrong, yep. but it means you better be careful when you deal with her. Um, to some degree, it is hard for anybody to know that. And this, for the, but it's hard. This is not just something that's unique to history. I mean, in economics, half the economists don't know economics. Yep. <laughs> so how do you know which economist to listen to? Or let's say you're a Christian and you're trying to figure out, well, should I be a Lutheran, a Calvinist? Should I be a Christian scientist maybe? Should I be a Catholic? Should I be a Baptist? And so you read accounts by people from all these different denominations, and every single one of them sounds persuasive to you as yep. a layman. How are you supposed to know? So it's same thing goes for history. So for the layman, I mean, I, I don't really don't know how to advise you other than it's kind of a gut instinct. But for somebody with a little bit more knowledge, I would say, like, if it's an area where you've actually had some exposure to the first, you know, like the, the primary source documents, 
then you're in a position to make an evaluation. Okay. Because, uh, for example, you know, if you've read what Thomas Jefferson has to say in the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798, then you know a lot of early American history. Right. And what, you know, so it's things like that. Like, so if you look at my book, Nullification, one of the things I did was half that book is documents. Yeah. So that people could see I was not making this up or that uh, I wasn't just cherry picking a few sentences here and there. Half the book is documents nobody's ever seen. I mean, basically, you could round it up to nobody. I just reproduced them so that people could make their own minds up, basically. So in terms of who are historians I recommend, uh, I, well, I mean, there aren't historians I, I would just say, this person is great on everything. Go read this person's textbook, because I don't like textbooks. I like books on more specific topics. So when it comes to, like, foreign policy, who are good people to read? Well, I mean, you know, there are some good people on the left, uh, like William Appleman Williams. You can get a pretty decent uh, – uh, Walter Lefebvre, you can get a pretty decent grasp of it. Realizing that he's got Marxist tendencies, he still does get a lot of things right. Yep. Um if you want the mainstream view of something, I would go with – I don't know how many, how many non-specific books he has, but Ernest May, my old college professor, he was uh, an official in many U.S. administrations. So he's going to give you the establishment view. Yep. And sometimes you, know, you want to know what the establishment view is. He's a popular historian, but, but doggone it, he's darn good. I don't care what his detractors say. He's darn good. Paul Johnson. I always recommend his book, Modern Times. Yeah. You're going to learn so much, and you're going to love every page of it yeah. in there. So those are my, my thoughts. Yeah. Um, one more question before I let you plug away on uh, the Ron Paul curriculum and, and Liberty Classroom and whatever else you'd like to plug on. Um, occasionally, you talk about on your podcast, you know, sh are, are you binging on any shows on Netflix these days or any movies uh, that have caught your attention recently? Well, I'm going to tell you a show, and somebody tells me that in my group, you gave away part of the plot line. So shut up when I tell it to you. Oh, okay? I did? Okay. Yes. Which one? Uh, uh, Westworld. Oh, sorry. You weren't supposed to say that thing about Bernard. Oh, okay, I won't. That takes yeah. half the joy out know. of the show. I, re I really hated that show, so I, I felt I, 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 that okay. was mean-spirited of me. But Okay. Uh, All right. Well, I like the show very okay. much, so... So I'm in the middle. I've just finished that, watching season two. That's fine. I could still be your friend. Okay. okay. All right. Well, remember the <laughs> Rothbard rule. Everybody's entitled to one deviation. Right. So we'll both apply that, that to each other. Yeah. Um, and I've been going back, um, re-watching some Simpsons that I uh, missed or, or that I liked. Uh, but, but yeah, right now it's Westworld. And I don't know that I'm watching a whole lot else. Mainly that. Okay. Um, so you, you talked about the uh, uh, Ron Paul curriculum and Liberty Classroom. Uh, assume uh, someone doesn't know everything about it, uh, as someone who's listened to most of your uh, podcast would. Uh, give them the pitch on why it's something they should be interested in. Well, the Ron Paul curriculum is self-taught. So it means you're not running around, you know, like a chicken with his head cut off, running yourself ragged 24 hours a day as a homeschool parent. It runs itself. Yep. That's the beauty of it. It's video-based, and it runs itself, and you can have your sanity and a clean house and homeschooled children. The, the beauty of it is not just that they're going to learn material they wouldn't learn anywhere else. I mean, you would assume that with, with a name like the Ron Paul curriculum, but they're also going to learn entire uh, courses that wouldn't be taught to them elsewhere, like personal finance for teenagers. Shh. Yeah, you think that's necessary? Or how to, how to run a, a, a home business? or how to write effective advertising copy. 
Yep. And if that is a skill that if you master, you don't have to worry about things. You can always freelance doing that. Yep. Or or how to how to do a blog, a YouTube channel, a public speaking. Public speaking. We need people to be effective at public speaking. So these things are covered. You're not going to get that anywhere else. So that's ronpaulhomeschool.com. That's my affiliate page because I if you just go to the Ron Paul website, you're not going to get my bonuses. You get my bonuses at ronpaulhomeschool.com. Liberty Classroom was my site kind of like for adult enrichment, for people okay. who feel like they suffered from educational malpractice is what I call it. They got out of college. They didn't get taught X, Y, and Z, or it was distorted or whatever. Well, on your commute, you can get the education you should have had. So that's libertyclassroom.com. But in general, um, the key thing with Woods, even though I know people think they don't like getting email, you got to get my emails because all the people, even people who would never in a million years admit that they get the Woods emails, they get them. Yep. And I, I, it's strictly private. I would never reveal the identity of people on my list. But let's just say they all read it. Uh, that's my email newsletter that comes out pretty regularly. And that doesn't cost you anything. Not only does it not, it costs you negative because I'll give you a free thing when you sign up for it. And that free thing um, is my, well, let's do the ebook, Our Enemy the Fed. You get that free ebook, Our Enemy the Fed, at ourenemythefed.com. And then you start getting the old, uh, the old emails. That's great. Um, I, I'd like, I'd really like to thank you for your time and, and all your dedication to Liberty, uh, even in the face of, uh, all the, st- all the stuff you get. And one of the things I just to, to pay you a compliment, I think you can tell a lot about a man by the friends that he has. And you've got friends like Bob Murphy and Michael Malice and Jeff Deist and, uh, the, the enemies that you have tell, uh, tell a story as well so uh they're um, the ones i would choose if i had to choose enemies it would be these <laughs> right yeah <laughs> that's a good way to put it uh we'll let you go there and tom keep up the good work we really appreciate everything over here at the mises caucus thanks aaron my pleasure all right folks i hope you enjoyed that remember if you would like to be part of a group that does not automatically assume you want to murder old people because you would like to go to the park then i urge you to join my private group where we discuss all kinds of interesting topics without accusing each other of murder. So that is available to you when you go over to supportinglisteners.com and support The Tom Woods Show. So go do that, and I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.